Next on the show here in London, a group of lads who've all adopted the fairly fashionable shoulder-length hairstyle. And their music is exclusively the British commercialised form of rhythm and blues, as you'll hear in this number called Big Boss Man from The Pretty Things. The pretty things. Hello and welcome to the Strange Brew podcast. My name's Jason Barnard, and that was The Pretty Things and Big Boss Man from Saturday Club, presented by Brian Matthews all the way back from October 1964. It's because I've got the great Dick Taylor here today from The Pretty Things. Uh, a huge welcome, Dick. Hi, very nice to be here. I thought it'd be good to start with something that's a, a bit more sort of blues or R&B related, given you'll be able to confirm your early inspirations in terms of getting into music. Was that the sort of material that you were listening to or did that come later? No, no, absolutely. It was sort of all uh, like Jimmy Reed, Chuck Berry, maybe a little bit later. Initially, funny enough, I started listening to Big Bill Brunsey because my sister 
was very much into Big Bill. My my dad used to go, oh, bloody Big Bill Boozy again, isn't it? And <laughs> yeah, so we'd be listening to stuff like that. And um, I mean, I had pretty sort of wide taste, which was, I wasn't um, solely interested in one sort of music. I, I loved jazz of both modern and trad jazz. And there seemed to be a war going on between the the traditionalists and the modernists, of course. But I thought, sorry, I like all of it. And um, and then, of course, the people like Big Bill and then Muddy and Jimmy Reed and what have you. And because, you know, obviously, you know, the story being, about being at school with Mick and everything. Yeah. And he was really very good at getting imports from the States. So like, and... I must admit, to the crime of home taping <laughs> way back then, borrow a record and stick it on and uh, record it. I mean, I, I think I'm probably lucky to be alive. Some of the ways we used to uh, kind of uh, attach tape decks to record players. And funny enough, sitting under a bed just over there somewhere yeah. is the record player that... Um, my uh, sister had what we used to do is that was the thing which used to chain up to the record player and also it made reasonable guitar amplifier and also really good for mixed voice so it'd be yeah the microphone would be going through that yeah and so yeah that's all the sort of music we were listening to anyway and what sort of age were you, were you knocking around with mick 10 11 well i did the 11 plus exam so I was 11 then, I presume, going, first of all, yeah, 11. And a friend of mine, Robert Beckwith, we were into playing plastic ukuleles very badly. Or at least he had one. I think I, I think I just borrowed it at the time. And I was at school with Robert and Mick from the age of 11 onwards. Uh, Robert before that. And then, like I say, with Mick, and gradually we got to know one another, you know, everybody in our class. And like I say, Mick was up there because in, in the musical tribes, we were part of the uh, rhythm and blues tribe. And, yeah, first of all, of course, we all loved rock and roll. And then rock and roll got a bit soft and um, Pat Boone came along. <laughs> what have you, you know what I mean? It was... Uh, what was so good was stuff like, you know, obviously um, Little Richard and um, Eddie Cochran, Buddy Holly as well. And then, I don't know, that was a kind of natural progression to listening to rhythm and blues. And also because I really had a kind of interest in blues music because of the Big Bill thing. And, yeah, that kind of all fitted together. So when did Keith Richards come on the scene? Now, Keith... What that was all about was when I was 16, I went to art school. I did my GCEs in those days, went to Sidcup Art School, and we, you know, a few of us would play guitar in the boys' cloakroom, and this uh, scruffy guy in a purple jacket, no, sorry, purple shirt, Wrangler jacket, he brought in a, a little arch top, and was playing Scotty Moore things and that kind, and we got chatting. Anyway, that was key. So we were at art school together. I was rehearsing with Mick, 
then the famous meeting on Dartford Station happened, yeah. and Mick said, would it be all right if Keith came to the rehearsals? Why not? And then that kind of... And my grandfather had left me... Well, left me. <laughs> when he died, his little drum kit seemed to, for some reason, came to me. And I was... Put it like this, I would never have been Charlie Watts. <laughs> it just wasn't... Uh, yeah, so I bash on that as well. Not very expertly, shall we say. Particularly when Keith was there, otherwise we'd have too many, too many guitarists. And then, of course, we met up with Brian, and, yeah, <laughs> the rest is history. You went on guitar in those early years of the Stones, were you? No, 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 no. I, I mean, it was literally the early year of the Stones because ah. what it was was we met up with Brian at the Ealing Club at Alexis Corner's gigs, which he put on there weekly, and we'd all traipse over there. I mean, literally one side, totally one side of London to the other. Or In fact, where I lived was outside of London in those days and, until London swallowed it up. We'd have to travel all the way on the tube and what have you. And I think, yeah, then Mick sometimes borrowed his dad's car. So he must have been 17 at that point because I think he got his license pretty young. And anyway, we went we went over to uh, Ealing. Met up with Brian. Brian recruited Mick. Mick took along Keith. Some of Brian's band thought it was all too rock and roll. <laughs> Brian asked me if I played bass. I said I would give it a go. And, sub and consequently, of course, did. And then we rehearsed and we did a few gigs. And, all, and by that time, I just... Uh, I enjoyed playing. I enjoyed playing with Mick and Brian and everybody. But I just, I wanted to play guitar. And also, I was trying to get into the Royal College of Art, which I didn't do. I went to the Central School in the end for a little, for a short period because Phil nagged me into starting another band. And so that's how the pretty things kind of started up. It doesn't seem that long between the pretty things starting up and, and, and you getting signed to Fontana. Yeah, it was really quite quick. Well, what, what happened was when I went to the Central, I met Brian Morrison, who became my manager, because he was, he was studying furniture design, um, and he was the social secretary. And also at the art school with Legs Larry Smith and Viv Stanshaw. Oh, and he was managing the Bonzos as well. But Brilliant. He, he said, oh, do you want to come and do the art school dance? Which we did. I remember virtually having to pour Brian into the back of his little Austin 7, which he had at the time. <laughs> and Because he was bragging about how much money he'd made. And, 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 no, you're not meant to make money, Brian. You're meant to be <laughs> social secretary. Um, anyway, so he said, you know, I'd really like to manage you a lot, which he did. We started doing quite a lot of the art schools around London, and I think it was, I think it might have been the Royal Academy that we played, and we met this guy called Jimmy Duncan, who said, I think I can get you a recording deal. And we did a demo for Fontana, and we were signed up. So it was, it was, we didn't, unlike... The Beatles, or, you know, we didn't do our apprenticeship. 
it was literally like started gigging did a, i don't know how many gigs we did not that many and then we got signed up and it was jimmy that brought you rosalind yes and it certainly wasn't the song which it became when he brought it to us because he he just demoed it with a piano and we thought what the hell are we going to do with this but we better do it because he has got a seat in with the record company and so we kind of adapted it quite radically into Rosalind. It's got that um, Bo Diddley type feel to it, hasn't it? Yeah, yeah, we we definitely, I mean, we love Bo. Yeah, we did quite a few Bo Diddley numbers. Um, yeah, so we thought, well, if we kind of adapt the Bo Diddley beat into into what was really a bit of a lame song, it might actually pep it up a bit. <laughs> Sixty-four, the Beatles were huge. Then you had the Rolling Stones, and the Rolling Stones were more outrageous or longer hair than than the Beatles. But then the press were then saying that the Pretty Things were like the rougher and rawer version of the Stones. <laughs> yes, that's right. Was that something that the, your label were promoting, or is that something you were consciously doing? Or we were just being ourselves, basically. And uh, I think because our image kind of did fit into that pretty well. It just sort of it fell together, really. And then the press sort of really played on it a lot, which was kind of, you know, 
I mean, we weren't exactly objecting to it because it kind of worked. And quite a bit of those material in the first few years had a bit more of an acoustic edge. People seem to forget that. And Honey, I Need is a, a great example of that, which gave you and the group a, a slightly different sound to some of your contemporaries. Yeah, that was largely because I bought a Gibson 12 string and we thought, well, we'd like, we'd like to use it. And Honey, I Need, we actually I wrote with some friends at this flat I was sharing with them, and we actually wrote it on the Gibson, I think, from what I can remember. And it just said that, you know, the sound seemed to work. And yeah, you know, why not? It's kind of how we felt that, well, why not have, you know, because otherwise we'd, we would have been really boxed into that R&B, mm. totally into the sort of standard R&B mould which we wouldn't really have been that good at, I don't think, really. We weren't we weren't the Yardbirds, you know. We wanted to be a bit different from, from some of the other people. If you don't want me to know you, better set me free. I just can't continue to be to live in misery. your contemporaries had certain issues when they were playing live screaming fans that kind of thing what were your shows like in sort of 64 65 it all depends where you played right we used to go to newcastle we went up there and we i remember there was one girl who used to absolutely from the edge of town she'd pursue us we used to call her the newcastle runner <laughs> and like we get we get to the edge of town. Oh, there she is. And she's like herring down the street after our van. And we we did a record promotion thing in a record shop in, I think it was South Shields. And we turned up at this record shop. And it was just myself and Dufty, our road manager, in the van. And we we watched as the van got 
vandalised <laughs> because well, it wasn't really van; it was souvenir hunting, and the wipers went. You know, everything, everything removable. They they came armed with screwdrivers and everything. I remember that we could hear this thumping, and then suddenly there was a a face of a girl, like face, upside down against the windscreen. And we go, oh my god! It's like like the furies. Uh, it was extraordinary. Uh, so anyway, and I've got a feeling that van didn't make it home. <laughs> As we kind of move into 1965, songwriting continued, and, and you and the group, in terms of writing material, you were able to express different sounds, and Can't Stand the Pain is a perfect example of writing your own material and presenting a, a very different type of song. Yeah, I, I don't know quite how it... Can't Stand the Pain... I know it started off with, I did the guitar riff, and I've got a feeling it's Bobby Graham actually playing the piano on it. And he just said, why, why not go, dling, dling, dong, you know, the, the little piano thing. And the chords, we just didn't want to do standard chords and just messed about until we got a chord sequence. And that's kind of how it, you know, and I think it was pretty much written in the studio. I think the I, I might have had the idea for the riff the night before or something, but mostly then when it came to the Phil putting words together, he literally, it just all came, you know, on the spur of the moment. But again, <laughs> I don't really know how to how to say how it, where it popped up from. It just it, it was just a thought, really. Keith Moon was following you and the group around that period, wasn't he? Um, yeah, he used to come to the Hundred Club. And watch us. Actually, Keith Moon. Yeah, I remember he he actually took me to hospital because <laughs> I, I we were going to when we were meant to go to Scandinavia. For some reason, Keith stayed around my my flat. I think there's probably quite a bit of weed smoked, but there you go. <laughs> so anyway, he stayed around my flat, and I woke up in the morning, and I, I remember getting out of bed. I'm thinking, oh, my God, I'm dying. I've got the most horrible pain. And kind of struggled. I think it was downstairs in that flat. Yeah. And, yes, it was. And there's Keith there. And I said, I don't think I can... I think I've got to go to hospital because it's incredibly painful having a kidney stone. Uh, anyway, he had his Rolls Royce outside. So <laughs> I got taken to hospital in Keith's roller. And Billy Harrison did the gigs in Scandinavia. There was a couple of gigs there, which I was really yeah, quite pissed off to to miss because I, I love gigging in, in Denmark and well, and in Sweden. We didn't really go to Norway, weirdly. Um, I've just been to Norway, funny, quite recently, and that was great. Really had a good time just doing one gig and some recording. In very early 1966... There was a lot of talk about a Pretty Things film, and I, there was a very short film that was made of the Pretty Things. Do you have any memories of, about that? Oh yeah, yeah, of course. It was who was it who made it? Not Tony Palmer, no. Uh, or was it? But of course, it was all done on, done on film in those days, which was pretty good fun. And yeah, it was basically just us messing about quite a bit as was the, maybe the fashion in those days. But also they used some, because we did LSD in the film, didn't we? And they did and they yeah. did this thing where they shot into 
like sheets of, of um, like foil. So you, you had the sort of weird distortions and everything. I think they used a, a fisheye as well. And yeah, I can remember it reasonably well. And I remember there was one scene where Brian threw up a load, there's something about a load of money going up in the air and us all grabbing it. And uh, I don't know how many times it got shown or whatever, but of course now it's on the internet, of course, I guess. And when you say LSD, that was the song. And, yeah. <laughs> and when you were saying money, yeah. money, LSD, pounds, shillings and pence? Well, it was, wasn't it? But then they had the, uh, then they changed everything over to decimals. <laughs> our excuse was, our cover was blown. Um <laughs> But obviously, it was meant as a play on words, anyway. And yeah. admittedly, on the on the record, the LSD was with a pound sign, an S and a D, as some people who watch this may possibly remember. Yeah, so that was the idea of because obviously, Lucy in the Sky of Diamonds was obvious, most obviously. You were before. We were you were before, before that. We? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, we were. Well before. Yeah. It was actually while LSD was still legal as far well, as a matter of interest, I think. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. I was very wary of it. Very, very wary of it. Because uh, for some reason I've read a couple of books about the, about, you know, how the psychedelic experience and how it could be wonderful or it could be go completely the other way and funny enough where i lived we lived underneath this bunch of guys who were who were doing the first happenings in the marquee where the floyd used to play and it was all they'd all lock the doors and all everybody would drop acid and have light shows and everything it was really early actually yeah i'd like to know what happened to some of those people <laughs> Easy. Money 
this the time that um, Viv Prince left and Skip Allen joined? Yes, it would have been. Yes, yes, indeed. And was that just because Viv was quite wild generally or drinking or? Well, yeah, he was, he was really, yeah, it was, he was drinking an enormous amount, which he always had done. But he's, I remember what, when it really came to a head, simply because, you know, we were watching him absolutely being pretty much out of control a lot of the time. And Phil kind of remembers it different from what I believe happened is that we, we played at the Twisted Wheel in Manchester, or rather we were booked to play in the Twisted Wheel in Manchester. And Viv had been out the night before and was really, you know, it obviously was really pissed. Anyway, it came time to, it was, no, actually it must have been a while before when we were sound checking or whatever we used to do in those days, whether sound checks actually existed. But anyway, we got to the gig and Viv went off over to the pub over the road. And then he sat down on the pavement and said, I'm not playing. Oh. And we said, what? Why? And he, um, he said, they won't let me in over the road. They let all, they let everybody else in who's coming to the gig. They let their crowd in, but they won't let me in. I'm not going to play, whatever the logic of that is. But anyway, so we said, well, you'd better go home then. And we managed to get the drummer of um, Hedgehoppers Anonymous. It's good news week. Yeah, it was good news for us. That we managed. <laughs> God knows how we got hold of him. Anyway, he came and played, and... I think at that point we said, look, Viv, you know, you, it's this isn't working out. Um, or he said, oh, I better go, whatever, whatever. What we found out afterwards, the reason they wouldn't serve him in this pub is because the pub also had a hotel attached to it at the back and he'd been in there with the kinks the night before and they'd completely trashed the place. <laughs> and so when they saw him... I don't think he connected the dots. He didn't realise it was one and the same place. And when they saw him, they said, no, mate, you're not coming in here. But prior to that, things had been getting a little bit out of hand with him as well. <laughs> I don't know what else to say about that. No. Midnight to six, that's another one of yours, isn't it? Yep. Yeah, I know Phil and I concocted it, and we recorded it at... We didn't record it at Fontana, we recorded it at... Ah, IBC. What is it? I can't remember what it's called. But um, Glyn Johns actually produced that one. And we had the keyboard player from Goldie and the Gingerbreads played the Hammond. And I think it was... Oh, what's the, the pianist who played on everybody? Oh, Nicky Hopkins. Nicky Hopkins, yeah, of course. Nicky Hopkins is playing the piano on it. That is definitely not Bobby Graham playing the piano on that. Yeah, so yeah, so that was recorded at the court, actually really at late late night session, funnily enough. So it was a bit midnight to sixty. Interesting way that that song is structured because it kind of changes pace at times. Yeah, don't ask me. <laughs> All we did was write it, but we really wanted to get that. That sort of feeling of, you know, late night clubs and a bit of blue beaty thing about it to a certain extent. Yeah, that, that feeling. The song only sort of dented the top 50, mm. whereas kind of in the first year or so you were you were getting top 10. Yeah. 
was it just a case of getting a bit disillusioned with the way that Fontana were promoting you or just carrying on and just carrying on and doing it? I mean, being even being in the top 50 was in those days was well, you were doing all right. You had to sell a lot of records just to get, yeah, yeah, exactly. And we knew, you know, we knew it was a good record and what have you. to Bobby at that point Bobby Graham that is and why Glyn Johns produced that one and then we got Steve Rowlands who I must say Phil and him were not best of buddies shall we say it didn't I don't know but he wanted us he very much wanted us to make a successful pop record which is fair enough because that's his that's you know was that was that after come see me yeah, I'm trying to think of st- who who recall who produced "Come See Me." That was a soul cover, wasn't it? Yeah, although I'm not sure that the original ever came out in those days, because it was what's his name, Tubbs, Ernest Tubbs, who I always imagine him some you know being somewhere like Nashville or something. Apparently, he's a guy who lives in Brighton uh, who wrote it, and then the version of it that we heard was i can't remember, again i'm sorry i can't remember the name of the guy and then we kind of put our own slant on it hopefully and john i'm not sure john john stacks said he thought i played the bass on it because we put it through um through my fuzz box but i think it was him playing the bass i'm, I'm not guilty 
I think. But I did definitely lend him the fuzz box, but you know, and that that was that I that's where that came from. Around this time a lot's been said about the decision not to go to the United States. Yep. Certainly in that first phase of the group affected kind of your sales. Yeah, I I mean all those things are so difficult to to judge, particularly in hindsight, funny enough. What would have happened if we had gone to the States? Would we have finished up disintegrating? I think it's not unlikely. And, of course, we did the tour in New Zealand, which this is obviously prior to Viv leaving. Yeah. And it, what um, Brian Morrison said was basically, if you go to the States, it's going to cost money to do that the first until you've got a proper foothold. He he basically said, I don't think we can afford to go, you know, afford to go there. So, but then got the offer to go to New Zealand. discussing about the change of producers earlier and the pop sound yeah. so for the album emotions was that steve Rowland? that was steve, steve Rowland, yeah and phil and i was were funny enough when we made it i would say that phil was very very much for it i was a little bit less enamored of the whole project 
But after that, films <laughs> we kind of reverse roles because I really quite like the album, and Phil, yeah, Phil really didn't like. Well, he particularly didn't like all the brass and uh, string arrangements. Although I think the Sun has got lovely strings on it. I think it's just brilliant. In fact, I've got this little project where I want to sample the strings and write another song with the, that little phrase sampled in it. Like, whether it will ever happen, I don't know. But I think it's quite a, would be quite a smart idea. I don't think I could be sued <laughs> for using the sample. This was around the time that your bassist John Stacks left and mm. Wally Waller and John Povey arrived, yeah. is that right? Yeah, because John... Well, John had got married. He wanted... Him and Wendy... His wife really wanted to go to Australia. And, I mean, I thought John was just such a lovely bass player and everything, and a lovely, lovely person as well. But we lost Brian Pendleton first, literally. Right. He um, just, he didn't, uh, he didn't turn up at rehearsal one time, and that was it. And then our road manager, Pete Watts, he went round to where Brian was living, and found um, basically an empty flat, a few smashed up things, a, a, a wedding ring on the table, and uh, no Brian. And we didn't see him for quite a few years after that. Wow. Yeah, it was all very odd. Anyway, so Brian, Brian disappeared. <laughs> and then um, then we, we, were, we were doing it as a four-piece with just John and, and myself, and we were doing quite a lot of gigs. And enjoying it, actually. And then we started doing emotions. And that was, I think, John was not very happy with, with that and also wanted to go to Australia. And so that's, yeah, that's what happened. He, he up sticks and went to Australia with Wendy. the sky cross the sky you reach out you reach out but it's too high it's too high will you settle 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 for that one Touch by land Water touch by land When the sun has passed you by Passed you by In the dark In the darkness You will cry You will cry And your tears and your tears, and your tears, and your tears, and your tears will be soaked up by the sand. Soaked up by the sand. It's been my fault, yes, mine from the start. If I told you, never. Falling so hard, so hard 
John Povey, their background in Burn Elliott and the Fenman or the Fenman, great harmonies and broader talents that they brought to the group must have ultimately started to add to the feeling of psychedelia that, that started to come in? Kind of. Um, one amusing thing was that we spent ages rehearsing with Bob when, when we decided, you know, Wally and John are going to join. So we, we had very, very controlled rehearsals and had everything worked out to a T, new numbers, blah, blah, blah. And then we went off and did some gigs in France. And the very first one was at a place called Sable Delon. And we got on stage and everything that we'd done just went out the window. <laughs> and it was just musical anarchy. And Skip was off for drums and dashing about. And then I won't, I won't uh, drop him in it about some fishing boats having a bit of an issue floating out to sea but uh, anyway there was complete complete mayhem and I, I was looking at Wally and John and could see like what the hell's happening here so it kind of turned and also the the kind of psychedelic thing even when Viv was there we would do long kind of we'd extend numbers a lot and go off into quite psyche things quite often didn't have any light shows or anything like that but um um we would very much be yeah very improvisatory shall we say which kind of gave, gave us a good back background to when when we did become more psychedelic with wally and john that kind of helped that uh we weren't we weren't afraid of of going off into some pretty odd place musical places at times when did that start to affect the songwriting and, and, and as well uh john povey and wally waller getting involved in that was was that kind of the defecting gray time or yeah yeah i think the main thing was that we when we were at fontana we had steve Rowland really wanting to control our output and everything the contract with fontana finished we didn't have one a con so we were we were basically, we didn't have a recording contract. So what we did was we went and did a load of demos and it was pure freedom. So we could do what we wanted. And that's kind of how Defecting Grey and um, what was the piece? Uh, talking, about talking about good times. Uh, I don't think that was on the, that wasn't part of the, um, part of the demos. Uh, right. Can, I can hear the song in my head. 
but we did about four or five numbers anyway. And uh, Norman Smith heard them. They got taken around to EMI. And Norman Smith heard them and said, I really want to record this band, which he did. So it was the fact that we really had that freedom to, and we just went down into Regents, into Southern Sound in Regent Street, in Denmark Street, and um, recorded like five tracks. And subsequently, of course, Defecting Grave was re-recorded. And some people say, we think the demo is better. And <laughs> I'm not sure. Yeah.
And then when we got signed up to EMI, I think we did Defect in Grey, talking about the good times. We recorded Bracelets of Fingers was the first track we recorded for the album, which at that time wasn't SF Sorrow. And then Phil started writing the, then somehow Phil started writing the story. We started playing other numbers and SF Sorrow was born was the next track which we recorded. And then it kind of went on into being SF Sorrow. And that's kind of how it, how SF Sorrow was born. Um, and for some reason, I don't, we didn't actually record bracelets of fingers in, in, in Abbey Road, but everything else was, of course, was, I think, I think that's right. I'm right in saying so. All the rest of SF Sorrow was. But we were recording there for ages because we would again be recording largely at night in order to fit, A, fit in with gigs and B, we could do it sort of during studio downtime so we could spend a bit more of our non-existent budget. And Norman was great. Norman was so in tune with what we were doing. And it was really, yeah, it was a very good time. And yeah, the Beatles were recording at the same time as us. And and tomorrow, actually, I remember going into the studio, into studio, the smaller studios, and they did a really brilliant version of Strawberry Fields. That's absolutely stunning. And I was there when they were recording. I was thinking, my God, Steve is just unbelievable. The writing and recording process for SSR seemed to take a while, and then it seemed to take a further while for the, the release of the album. Yeah, yeah, it did, actually. In fact, by that time, I kind of got just thinking, oh, I think I want to do try and see what I can find outside the world of the pretty things. And then, of course, I did leave for a few years, and then it came out, and it didn't sell zillions. Otherwise, I'd have been kicking myself from there. Maybe. So had you left by the time it got released? I think I was there when it when it was released. I think I was still in the band. Yeah, as I say, it didn't actually sell at that time. I mean, it, it's kind of good in a way, because although, you know, it became the cult classic, you know, like, like love, you know, like forever changes and things. We've got um Top Gear version of SS Sorrow is Born. I've spoken to a number of artists recording that the BBC radio material and some bands were basically saying I wasn't really a fan of it and we just brought the original backing tapes in and didn't really pay much attention to it. What was your approach to those BBC sessions? Did you do your own versions or did you bring the original? We did our own versions, yeah, there and then, from what I can remember. Yeah, certainly, we certainly didn't bring backing tracks in. And I, I must say that some of them, I was quite surprised at how accurate the our sort of reproduction of them was. BBC Sessions material has come out in different guises over the years, but the, the most recent live at the BBC Pretty Things box set is exceptional. Well, thank you. Yeah, I mean, you, th- those were the things where you'd basically just go and do them. But because by that time we'd done quite a lot of recording, we kind of knew how to cooperate and with the the guys there and you know try and get reasonably good results what a guess sound that is the lineup of this group is phil may john Covey, dick taylor alan waller and john alden and those are the fellas that now make up the pretty things 
Things have just created an album of songs about a character called SF Sorrow, and today they're doing live performances of three tracks from it. That one was called SF Sorrow is Born. And you were alluding to this earlier in leaving the group and some of that period where you were producing. So we've got Hurry on Sundown by Hawkwind. There was a few versions of this, I think. There was kind of like a demo version and then the album version. Were you only involved for the album version? I think I was just involved in the album version. In fact, I played the acoustic on it. Well, one of the acoustics, obviously Dave was playing as well, but I played the little guitar solo on it. So how did you um, come about Dave Brock and the group? Were you were you involved in that sort of Ladbrook Grove, Notting Hill scene? Uh, kind of. I was living, actually, I'm trying to think, I think at the time I was living in, I was caught and I got contacted, I think by Andrew Lauder, or I contacted Andrew, I can't remember which way round it was, and met up with the guys from Clearwater Productions, which were based in the Grove, Basing Street or somewhere. And then 
I went to see Hawkwind, and I absolutely loved the gig because it was not musically polished, <laughs> but it was just so a lot of very enthusiastic people in the audience. It was really, really good. And then came the big issue of uh, actually do, doing the recording. And the first one we did, which was Hurry on Sundown, that went like a breeze. And then um, everything else. In the end, we would talk, Andrew and I were talking, and he said, why don't we just set up the PA and record it like that, record it live in the studio, which is basically what we did, which worked really well, and then did a bit of post-production uh, things out to it, and uh, Pub's your uncle, basically. And, of course, I also recorded... Skin Alley and Cachise. And then I kind of, I don't know, <laughs> my producing career seemed to uh, grind to a bit of a halt one way or another.
before the late 70s when you got back with the pretty things what else were you out of doing stuff out of music as well i wasn't doing hardly any music at all until i started gigging with um well it was kind of like at almost at the same time as the pretty thing the first pretty things revival gig happened yeah. but i started working with my good friend uh auntie pass auntie and the member of uncle <laughs> doing gigs with them quite a lot in the late 70s so i went with julian who's auntie and i went to see the clash and i thought yeah this is more like what i like it's not nodding proc rock at all but yeah no it was and that, that whole scene was just brilliant so i i got kind of roped into being a man from uncle and then the pretty things i got contacted by a guy in holland who wanted to do a gig with the pretty things oh yeah and i did this other thing i did another gig in holland prior to that and uh i said yes i'll do this gig as long as you understand this is absolutely not the pretty things <laughs> and i turned up at the 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 town where we were playing and wherever it was Groningen, wherever it was there was a banner across the road Groningen welcomes the pretty things for god's sake and i discovered then it's very hard to escape things like that and then anyway this other guy contacted me and said would i be interested in doing a gig and i contacted phil and so we went with phil myself pete tolson I'm not sure who's playing the drums and the bass. And anyway, we did this gig in Alphen von Rhein, and then we were bootlegged, which caused no matter of aggro, particularly Phil was up in arms about that. But it, it did actually kind of bring the pretty things back together again, which was kind of really good because, you know, it had, you know, Phil and Phil with the band went over to america and we're doing the stuff with with led zeppelin and everything yeah which was kind of i think for him a bit of a two-edged sword because i think he it was absolutely everything he wanted but i don't think he really enjoyed a lot of the time out there yeah to be honest although you know you see the band were great but i think there was a lot of i don't know a lot of tensions and what have you anyway and then we came on to do crosstalk and everything because Phil got asked to do an album and he recruited myself and everybody else who was on crosstalk. And also after that, we met up with Mark St. John and we start, and he came with us to Spain. And I remember we just, myself and him drove all the way back and we were chatting all the while. And he had met up, he, I think initially met with Phil and then we did some recording with Mark. Then didn't see one another for quite a long time. Then he bumped into Phil somewhere and the, the friendship and he became a manager and producer and yeah. what have you. Going back to Crosstalk, you can you can feel that energy of that sort of punk and new wave scene immediately from hearing I'm Calling. Um, it, it seemed to just lift the band into a new era and almost back to your roots. Yeah, I, I certainly think it did. I mean, Pete Tolson was extraordinary on it. Yeah. But both he and I did really appreciate what was going on with the new wave stuff at that time. And Phil, Phil also, to a certain extent. And it was a really good album, which unfortunately 
got the slight kiss of death because when it was about to come out, I was sitting watching World in Action, literally the day before it came out. World in Action special. Warner Brothers are basically bribing record shops <laughs> in order to put things, <laughs> to get things, you know, in the charts and album charts and whatever. It was a complete expose of particularly Warner Brothers practices at the time. And I think that was that was one small coffin nail. Then they managed to press the whole batch of the album with the same side, with side uh-huh. one on both sides of the album, for which they gave Phil, as compensation, a large cheese. <laughs> a cheese? <laughs> a cheese, yeah. Quite a big cheese, but um, God knows why. So that didn't, I don't think that helped. And it's such a shame because it is actually a really good album.
I wanted to ask you about your time guesting or playing with the Mekons as well, which for yeah. some would feel a bit more left field. But actually, given what we were talking about in relation to that late 70s scene and what it came up with in, into the 80s in that more indie scene, it, it is a bit more of a natural fit. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, very much so. I met up with a journalist, Terry, oh, I can't remember his second name, but Terry, and I did an interview with him. And I think it might have been in a flat which Tom from the Recons had. And then Terry contacted me and said, would I like to go and guest with the Recons, who I'd never met at that time properly, at the living room, which was a tiny gig in somewhere in the east of London, isn't it? No, it wasn't Islington. Anyway, somewhere in the east of London. And it was the Mekons and uh, Michelle Schott was also on. And I remember at that time, John was using a little um, drum machine (laughs) and the rest of the band crammed at this tiny little gig. And it it was such a good experience. It was great fun. I just really liked the Mekons. I liked everybody's attitude. Very cool bunch of people you played on a few of their albums including latterly the Mekons rock and roll and memphis egypt it just rocks yeah the song i think i played on memphis egypt i can't remember which songs i played on strong links to leeds where i am as well the Mekons. yeah 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 funny enough my sister lived in leeds and she worked at the university and of course yeah of course it's very strong links with leeds
you were still playing on and off with the pretty things in the eighties as well. Yeah, I mean, we because one of the things which was going on was Phil was organising gigs at a pub called the Bridge House, and we were kind of the like the house band, and people would come in and guest like Mr Gilmore and what have you. It kind of turned into one version of the Pretty Things with Joe Shaw and Dave Wintour. Dave, the other Dave, was playing the keyboard. He was an extraordinary player who's now unfortunately died. I don't know what's happened to Dave Wintour. Um, anyway, so we did quite a few gigs as one version of the Pretty Things. Then we were doing gigs in Holland, which was great fun, and also France and Germany. And Phil and I also went over to Chicago and recorded Pretty Things Yardbirds Blues Band with Jim McCarty, which was quite an experience. I remember George, our producer on the record, who owned the record label, Phil one night said, I'm going to make my own way back, George. And George has said, you'll you'll fucking die. (laughs) (laughs) uh, Of course... Ever Phil rolled up at something like four or five in the morning and he had survived, but he was about to get on the subway out of town or the elevated, whatever it is there. And um, one of the guys said, we're not letting you on that train, and put him in a cab. And uh, he managed to get home in one piece. So, yeah. What material was it? Was it blues? stuff that you were playing really literally all blues we had a guy called studebaker john who um played harp and he played open tuned down electro guitar slide it was really good studebaker it was a really good experience and also we had a a do-what band called the eldorados who came and did some backing vocals and later on i went over to back over to Chicago and recorded an album with Andre Williams, the guy who did Jailbait way back in the 50s, and another album with, at the same time with the Eldorados. And that was a really good experience, I must say. A lot of recording in this time, including the Pretty Things from the late 90s onwards, we saw a string of Pretty Things albums as well. Yeah, that's right. So one of those albums being the sweet Pretty Things are in bed now, of course. Turn My Head, that's a song that originally dates from the mid... Yes, <laughs> that was one of the demos we did. Ah! Turn My Head, and it wasn't that one I was trying to remember, there was another one we did, but uh, yeah, anyway, Turn My Head, we never actually properly recorded it. And I must say it was something I always wanted to record. And the other thing, of course, is Mr. Evasion, which we recorded as a demo. Ah. And there's one more, which is the elusive song, which I can't remember. But, yeah, Turn My Head, we revived for that. And, of course, that that album was done with the lineup, the last electric lineup of the pretty things, which I must say, do you know something? It was actually the longest lasting solid lineup of the pretty things ever. Wow. Weirdly. And it was lovely. It was such a good band with George and Jack and Frank and yeah. It just worked. I remember seeing you guys at the borderline with, with that lineup, and I just remember how hard Jack was hitting the drums. It lifted yeah. the whole group. Yeah, I remember how hard he hit the drums. I my hearing aids are being fitted in a week. <laughs> 
<laughs> literally, I am actually. I've, surprisingly enough, I think my hearing survived quite well. No, but Jack was just a brilliant drummer. It was amazing. And going back to Turn My Head, it feels like there's a bit of a bird's influence in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the other thing which I didn't realise until I started playing it, it's also got hints of Daily Planet by Love. Oh, yeah. Even though I had the Love album, and I promise I didn't consciously rip that one off, <laughs> it was only when I listened to the Daily Planet again the other week, I realised, oh, hang on, that's very similar. <laughs> Maybe they they ripped us off, obviously.
years ago, went down to the Indigo at the O2 for the final bow gig, which was such a special and emotional occasion. We've got the version from that gig of Don't Bring Me Down. Oh, right. But it wasn't intended to be the last Pretty Things show. It was more a case of marking a shift from electric to acoustic, wasn't it? Acoustic, really, yeah. And then, of course, the honest truth about all that is that Phil was starting to... He was enjoying the gigs, but it was all the the travelling and everything was becoming too much for him because of his, his health. And several years previously to that gig, we played in Spain, and that was... Phil was still smoking at the time. And... At the end of the tour, he was finished up in hospital in Spain, and I must say I went in to see him in the in the hospital ward, and he was unconscious with a oxygen mask on his face, and I thought, I'm not going to see you again. And then, of course, he did start smoking, and had quite a few years after that, which was I almost when he did die, I was almost thinking that well, we had that bonus five or however many years it was yeah post his obviously near-death experience when we turned spain but he was finding it difficult and also i mean it was although he would always step up to the mark and like before we would go on stage he'd be going oh i don't know i can do it tonight i don't know oh, i'm feeling terrible blah 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 and come on, Phil, yes, just you know, just try and do it. Come up on stage and suddenly he'd be transformed and like he'd be there, arms open wide, his shirt untucked, untucked out of his trousers and just yeah, singing his heart out and absolutely it was amazing actually the, the way it happened. And also I think it was actually therapeutic for him, to be honest. I think it was only Although he would get chest infections quite often, but he managed to deal with them pretty well. But he was finding it harder and harder. So the the idea, I think, really was to do something which would be much more acoustic and restrained and, and less difficult for him. The final bow gig, I mean, he was in great voice. Yeah. The band were fantastic. You had old bandmates joining you. You had Van Morrison, Dave Gilmore there. It really did feel like, as a final show, I don't know how many bands had their final gig in, in such a fantastic way. No, I think you're right, yeah, really, to be honest. I mean, it, it was a very enjoyable gig to do. Yeah, it was just, and, and it was a really good way to kind of bow out as it happens because of, you know, everything which happened afterwards. But we had definitely thought, well, we started recording, of course, the acoustic album, which became Bearer's Bone, Bearer's Bone. Yeah, so it was kind of a fitting end in a way, even if it was slightly, Mm. well, not unplanned, because we were definitely going to cut down, and maybe, maybe, you know, maybe our arm could have been twisted to do a few more, a few more electric shows, I would have, I would have hoped, I would certainly have hoped. Down and down 
young man this chick the other day man then to me she said she stays I got back talk about bearers bum bright as bloodies not only did you have such a, an amazing final show is that as a final album critically acclaimed as well and hugely well received so from a recording standpoint our next song being love in vain you're also at the top of your game as well a different sound acoustic sound yeah going back to the acoustic unfortunately the 12 string disappeared with the I lent it to, to Hawkwinds and their van got broken into way back when. I'll say no more. <laughs> <laughs> An album of, of covers this time, or original material that you and Phil didn't write at least. Absolutely, yes. We, we did actually, funnily enough, actually write and start. Well, Phil was coming over to me over on the island here. We started recording what would have been another electric studio album, but it... it kind of fizzled it didn't fizzle out but we started doing it but then we concentrated on doing the final show and everything and so there were a few tracks which we did put down don't know if anything will happen to them ever but when it came to the final album it was more a question of really yeah just finding good material weren't really worried where it came from um, as long as we thought it would suit us and Mark has a lot of uh, input. Picking Loving Vain, Robert Johnson song as well. Quite an, an interesting blues song, more complex than you'd think. Yeah, it's got a, a little sort of, uh, yes, little um, quirk to it, hasn't it, compared with a lot of his songs. Were you conscious of the Stones version? Of course, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, you know, you can't. It's something you certainly couldn't ignore, could you? But we wanted, to, obviously, to put a different slant on it. Mm. 
Well, I followed her to the station. A suitcase in my hand. Yes, I followed her to the station. A suitcase in my hand. It gets hard, it gets so hard. When all your love's in vain, all your love's in vain. But when the train rolled into the station, I looked her in the eye. When the train rolled into the station, I looked her in the eye. Lonesome. I couldn't help but to cry, couldn't help but to cry. Oh no. With two lights on behind Well, the blue light was my baby Red light was my mind Red light was my mind Oh no Our final song is also from Bare as Bone, Bright as Blood, and that's a great version of Devil Had a Hold on Me. So in terms of picking that material... Was it you, Phil, and, and your manager, Mark St. John? Yeah, we would play a lot of stuff, and there were songs w- which we would try, and it just didn't work out. And other things, obviously, like Devil's Got a Hold On Me, which we tried, and we just went, yeah, this is something we definitely want to do. 
and it was relatively smooth the way we managed to do it. A lot, what we did a lot of times was actually have Phil and myself, and sometimes Sam Brothers, who was on it as well, in the same recording booth, so we could really bounce off one another and try and keep Phil's original vocals. It didn't always happen, but we just try and get a good backing, either the whole thing or get a good backing track and then get Phil to finish up with good vocal. A very fitting and moving way to end. Am I right that the album got released relatively soon after Phil passed? Yes, yes it did, I believe. But I was glad we did it for Phil, because I think Phil knew that it was really something very special. And I think, you know, his voice has got so much sort of gravitas and everything, and obviously, obviously his death is horribly unfortunate but it kind of, the album sort of fitted into that, which is a pretty horrible thing to have to say. But you could almost hear that it was the last thing that he was going to do, really. Which doesn't mean to say that he was falling apart or anything like that. But it was just the way he did it. You mentioned this before. You're still recording and playing live, so we haven't heard the last of uh, Dick Taylor. Well, I certainly hope not. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I, I was just in... Norway and doing some stuff there with a band from from the Telemark region called the Ackerhaugen Raid and we played at a station funny enough I'd just recently before that I'd played at a steam railway <laughs> which is thing which was going on played a gig at another pub called the station here on the island and did a gig just across the water in in Southampton a pub called The Terminus. Thank you so much for your time today, Dick. It's been a yeah, huge sorry. pleasure to talk to you. And um, what fantastic music you've left. And, and uh, thank you so much. Well, thank you. Thanks for, thanks for having me. Cheers. Nice to see you again. Just a boy of two I was just a boy of two With golden hair and a button shoe The devil had a hold on me The devil had a hold on me I turned my head and I could see the devil had a hold on me. There's something wrong with the butcher's boy. There's something wrong with the butcher's boy. He trembled with his hand and voice. The devil had a hold on me. The devil had a hold on me The others knew to let him be But the devil had a hold on me The tailpipe split and the engine roared The tailpipe split and the engine roared I'm waving out of the Plymouth door And the devil had a hold on me 
The devil had a hold on me I turned my head and I could see The devil had a hold on me listening to the strange brew podcast if you do like the show please consider a small donation to help keep the show archive online it's 10 years since i started the podcast and hosting fees are increasing over time all your support keeps the show running and helps me get amazing guests to support me just go to the strangebrew.co.uk where you'll see a donate button on the homepage. thank you very much Plus, any reviews on your podcast services help to spread the word too. Thank you.